Brothers and sisters, good morning and welcome. You may be seated. My name is Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors joyfully here at Hagerstown Church. My joy, though, will be blunted for a moment because I will have to say goodbye to some of my favorite people, which is your children. This is the part of our service now where uh, the children will be dismissed to Hubtown Kids. So if you are in Blue Station, ages 3 to 5, you are going to follow uh, Mr. Brian uh, on your right. And if you're in the gray station, ages 6 to 5th grade, you are going to go to your left following Miss Tara. The kids in the gray station, specifically this morning, they're going to be considering the question, what are the sacraments or ordinances? And so the answer to this question is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And if you're looking for a helpful read on the subject of baptism and the Lord's Supper, might I encourage you to pick up a copy of Going Public by Bobby Jameson. That is my book plug for the day, even though there are a couple here. I'm going to put those away. And I'm going to give you a history lesson. You didn't think that you'd get a lot of history this morning, first with our history fact of 1882 from Brett. But I'm going to give you another date, May 7th, 1945. It's a date that will live on in the history books. Why? Because on May 7th, 1945, the German Third Reich submitted their unconditional surrender at the supreme headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force at Reims in northeastern France. May 8th, 1945, became known as VE Day, or Victory in Europe Day. Hundreds of thousands of people in Europe poured into the streets, specifically in London and Paris, singing, dancing, and lighting bonfires. Now, what's interesting is World War II did not end on May 7th. The fighting of the war was ongoing in Japan. And with this knowledge in mind, President Truman urged caution against celebrating the news of Germany's surrender too soon. You don't want to celebrate prematurely. You want to celebrate when the book is closed. But, like good, rebellious Americans that New York City residents are, New York City was the site of the largest VE Day celebration in the United States. Crowds gathered all through Times Square, and thousands marched down Fifth Avenue where confetti rained down on them. VE Day also happened to be President Truman's 61st birthday, which he told reporters was the best birthday he ever had. Friends, the grandest victories are worth grand celebrations. And as we witnessed in our study through uh, the first half of Esther chapter 9 last week, Queen Esther's people experienced an unexpected, grand, and providential victory. A victory that would be worth celebrating. So, turn with me now to the remainder of Esther chapter 9. We're going to pick up our study today as we conclude this brief uh, study through the book of Esther. We're going to start with Esther chapter 9, verse 16. If you don't have a copy of the Bible uh, with you, uh, or maybe Bible reading is new to you and you're brand new to the Bible, you can use the black pew Bibles that are in front of you. Uh, just turn to page 489 in the black pew Bible. Uh, the larger numbers uh, are the chapter numbers and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. You can also follow along with me as I read. Uh, but as we begin this time together this morning, uh, I, I can encourage you and, 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 and promise you that your time together with us this morning will be very beneficial if you have that Bible open in front of you. We're going to consider three observations from the conclusion of the story of Esther in Esther chapters 9 and 10. The Feast of Purim, the greatness of Mordecai, and the lessons we learn. So Esther chapter 9, verses uh, 16 to 32, we'll consider our first observation, the Feast of Purim. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. 
This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. There's a quick observation that we need to consider before diving too far. Last week's section of the Jews defending their lives focused primarily on the Jews in the city of Susa. This morning, we're seeing the scope expanded out where we get to see the Jews in the rest of the provinces. And so here we see in verse 16, not only did the Jews in the city of Susa gather to defend themselves, but the Jews in the rest of the king's provinces also gathered. Now, let's jump back into verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent all letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that they had been turned for that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. There's another observation that needs to be made here. So as we've studied over the last four, uh, four weeks through the book of Esther, we have seen reversal after reversal after reversal after reversal after reversal. And again, today, we will see ongoing reversals. Do you remember the first letter that we considered when we opened the book of Esther? It was a letter of death. Haman first sent a letter to remind the Persians that they are to kill the Jews. But then we saw another reversal with another letter. It was Mordecai's letter, approved by the king, empowered by the queen. And Mordecai's letter reminded the Jews that they were to defend themselves against the attack of their enemies. And in verse 20, we see another reversal of sorts. We see another letter being sent to the Jews. But this time, this is not a letter that is sent that the Jews are to understand that they are about to be slaughtered in a a year's time. No. And this is not a letter that is sent that the Jews are to receive where they arm themselves and prepare themselves for battle. No. This will be a letter that they would receive to celebrate. They would celebrate their deliverance. They would celebrate the fact that they got relief from their enemies. This phrase, relief from their enemies, shows up from time to time. And what's interesting is, this is another evidence of another reversal from previous chapters. In chapter 3, when the wicked Haman told the king that there is a certain people that do not keep the king's laws and do not keep the king's commands... It would be of no profit for the king to tolerate them. And last week, I gave you a little taste of what was to come in today's sermon. Because the Hebrew phrase in Hebrews chapter 3, or I'm sorry, in Esther chapter 3, the Hebrew phrase, that little idiom, it would not profit the king to tolerate them. That little Hebrew phrase literally means to give them rest. To give them relief. And so what do we see towards the end of the story. Another reversal. The Jews got relief from their enemies. And most of the story so far has been one of mourning and sadness, of great danger and peril. But again, another reversal. Because the day that would be the day that would mark the end of Queen Esther's people had been turned for them Notice that passive phrase, turned for them, not they turned the day for themselves. No, the day had been turned for them by the invisible hand of God's providence 
from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. Whereas their lives would be taken on this day and the day had been turned for them, they would now give gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Stunning reversals in the story of Esther. But the story continues. Verse 23. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing what the, that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Another reversal. Reversal after reversal. Verse 26. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Here we are landing the plane, if you will, as we conclude our story through the book of Esther. The end of this story looks very similar to its beginning. The story of Esther began, if you remember back in chapter 1, with feasting and gladness. And here we see the ending come again with feasting and gladness. But before the Jews would celebrate, we are shown the recording of further bloodshed. Back in chapter 9, verse 13, as we considered last week, Queen Esther made one additional request according to the king's word. He had again asked her, what is your request? And I will fulfill it. And so we saw a rather dark request. That the king would allow her people, specifically in Susa, to kill their enemies for a second day. And the rest of chapter 9 demonstrates that the king indeed was true to his word. He granted her request. But the request of Queen Esther, it didn't apply to all the Jews in the empire. It was specifically only in the city of Susa. So on the 14th day, these Jews um, uh, among the city of Susa gathered and killed another 300 men on that second day of killing. And we're told that the rest of the Jews in the rest of the provinces killed a total of 75,000 men. And so with figures like these, it's kind of difficult to conceptualize just what all these numbers add up to. But I think what the author is trying to show us and demonstrate here is a sense of finality. It's difficult to uh, imagine these large numbers, but what we can understand is a sense of completeness. The bloodshed is to end now with these numbers gone. With Haman killed and his ten sons killed, the very memory of the Amalekites, in a sense, as was promised in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, in a sense, the very memory of the Amalekites was being blotted out. 
there were no more descendants left, as recorded uh, by the author, of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And so, there would be no further uh, extending of Haman's progeny. Now, whereas Haman convinced the king in chapter 3 that it would not profit the king to tolerate these people, to give them rest, now we see Queen Esther's people experience a kind of rest from their enemies. And they celebrated this rest, not with a nap, but with feasting and gladness. So the second half of chapter 9, it shows us the inauguration of this feast holiday of Purim. We saw earlier, it was named after the casting of the lots, or poor. So if you remember back in chapter 3, Haman and his servants beneath him cast lots to determine what the fate of the Jewish people would be. And so here, in this feast holiday of Purim, the Jewish people obligated themselves to remember the great evil and threat they found themselves delivered from. You know, VE Day is not the only day of celebration that uh, Americans and all those who uh, allied themselves against the German Third Reich, it's not the only day that's remembered. Because once Japan surrendered later on in, uh, I believe it was September the 12th, there was another day that was inaugurated, VJ Day. Not exactly the most creative of marketing efforts there for naming holidays, but again, another effort to remember the great victory that was secured when the enemy was defeated. VE Day and VJ Day, these two holidays would be used to remember the evil that was obliterated and overcome, the great danger and threat that was now over. Even to this day, the celebration of Purim is held by the Jewish people. It's, it's one of only two feast holidays observed that is not commanded in the Torah. You might wonder what the other one is, but it's Hanukkah. Purim and Hanukkah are the only two feast holidays that are observed by Orthodox Jewish people today, not commanded in the Word of God, in the Torah. But as one author pointed out, the Feast of Purim, when properly understood, is more than just a reminder to God's people of his past ability to intervene decisively, even while remaining hidden to all but the eye of faith. It also pointed beyond itself to show us the need of a greater deliverance yet to come. A, a friend of mine several years ago was uh, a, a, a new and young Christian reading through the Bible, maybe for the first time. And when she was reading through the Exodus, she was stunned by the imagery of uh, the Exodus, and particularly the Passover. And she, in um, uh, earnestness and, and genuine curiosity, asked the question, why do we not observe the Passover now as Christians? She hadn't read through the story far enough to understand that like the Feast of Purim, the Passover itself pointed beyond itself. And very quickly, I just reminded her that the Passover was not something that Christians are commanded to observe, uh, nor do we see Christians throughout church history observing Passover. Why? Because we have a greater Passover. Our Passover lamb is Jesus Christ. But like the Feast of Purim, the Passover feast also pointed beyond itself to show us the need for a greater exodus that was yet to come. We'll consider that idea more later on. But now, consider with me our second observation, the greatness of Mordecai. In, uh, in Esther chapter 10, starting in verse 1, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew 
was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. There is in this chapter, as we conclude the story of Esther, another ironic reversal. In chapter 1, King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, he throws this grand feast in order to uh, rally the military and political support to wage war against the Greeks. And what the history books show us is that military effort was an abysmal failure, and it depleted the Persian treasury. So what do we see now? Here's how King Ahasuerus is going to celebrate. By raising taxes. He, imp he imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands, meaning he imposed a tax uh, indiscriminately uh, on all the people. And in verse 2, there's a sense of irony here as well, because what the author is recording here, which could be a clever use of uh, uh, trying to navigate the Persian uh, Empire, it's all the acts of his power, King Ahasuerus. All his acts of his power and might are recorded. But as we read through the story of Esther, we do not see King Xerxes to be a man of power and authority. He has been a character who has been subject to the whims of his petty bureaucrats who could cleverly manipulate him. And not only that, but we, when we read Esther's story, we cannot rightly say that it was by the power of King Xerxes that the people of Queen Esther were saved and delivered. There's, there's this sense of hiddenness and irony because who saved the people of Israel? Well, in a very real sense, it was the queen. It was Mordecai the Jew. But in a much more fuller sense, it was the invisible God, Yahweh. We saw in chapter 1 that uh, because Queen Vashti had uh, rebelled and refused King Xerxes, a decree was sent so that all women would now give honor to the men. But how were all the men of the Jewish people saved? By the honor from one woman. There's a beautiful sense of irony and reversal after reversal found in the story of Esther all capped in these uh, th uh, uh, brief three verses. Esther's opening chapter began with the greatness of King Xerxes displayed. And now it ends with the greatness of Mordecai displayed. And did you notice how the author records Mordecai's exercise of his vast power and influence? He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Mordecai and his greatness displayed here, it gives us a picture and gives us a whiff of an even older story found in Genesis chapters 37 to 50. In Genesis 37 to 50, we see the story of Joseph, who, in a very real sense, was great among the Hebrews. And he was popular with the multitude of his brothers, both Israelite and Egyptian. Through uh, Joseph's Godward-focused search of wisdom and willingness to obey the commands of God rather than uh, give into the fear of the Egyptian men, he was uh, raised to power. And with his power, he sought the welfare of his people. And he spoke peace to all his people. And now we see Mordecai, uh, in a sense, filling Joseph's shoes. But one of the themes that's explored and has been explored through our study through the story of Esther is the stewardship of power and greatness. Many of you in uh, this room today might think, well, that's not really a lesson for me to consider because I have no power or greatness. I'm an average Joe. I'm a middle-class American. I'm just kind of a normal guy. Power and greatness is stewarded by the celebrities and the uh, politicians and the elites of our society. Now, consider power and greatness stewarded by the elites of Esther's society. Power and greatness in the hands of King Xerxes was stewarded for his own self-satisfaction and pleasure. 
power and greatness in the hands of Haman was exercised for the satisfaction of his own sinful pride and evil wrath. Do you remember when he sat down to have dinner and drinks with his wife and all his friends? He was recounting the number of his sons. How many of us sit down with our friends and recount how many children we have? It's just a strange thing to do. Power and greatness exercised by Haman was to deliver death. But their use of power is in stark contrast by the use of power by Queen Esther and Mordecai. When uh, the queen and Mordecai exercised their power and their greatness, it led to the benefit of their people, not the satisfaction of their own petty prides and egos. But the story of Esther is not the only time that we see a contrast of power and greatness that is to be stewarded by the people of God. We see this in the very life and ministry of Jesus Christ himself. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus contrasted power and greatness used in the world versus power and greatness that would be used in the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 9, verse 35, And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. This is Jesus Christ saying this. This is not just some average Joe uh, spitting out some sort of pithy statement of, hey, if you want to be great, follow these three steps. No, this is the creator of the universe who, through the, by the very word of his power, upholds the universe, saying, if anyone would be first, he must be of the last of all and servant of all. Jesus, again, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see the contrast there of the stewardship of power and greatness by the Lord Jesus Christ himself? He being the very first, becoming the servant of all. And yet, in our sinfulness, we have the propensity to demand that we be treated as the first. That we be, treat, be treated as the greatest but not even the Son of Man, who was the very first and is still the very first, came to be served. But he came to use his power and his greatness to give his life away as a ransom for us. Friends, how do you exercise the power that is entrusted to you? Power has been entrusted to you. You may not believe that because it may not look grand like the elites of our society or by the lawmakers and the movers and the shakers, but power has been entrusted to you. Are you a mother? Are you a father? Are you a neighbor? Do you work and work under an employer? Are you, in fact, an employer? I could go on. Power has been entrusted to you in great detail and in small. So how do you exercise that? Do you seek power or a position of influence or a platform so that you may show off how great you are and in that sense look like Haman? Or do you seek to use your power, no matter how great, no matter how small, no matter what circumstances, to foster peace and the flourishing of others and thereby looking like Queen Esther or Mordecai the Jew? How do you exercise power? That would be a good question for you to reflect on and to consider uh, maybe over lunch today, maybe in a life group uh, this week, or maybe just during uh, uh, your morning coffee. How will you exercise power today? Now, back to the story here. For the majority of Esther's story, Mordecai faced the threat of death and peril. But do you see the most stunning reversal of all from this story? It ends with peace. It began with a feast to bring about the military of the Persian Empire to wreak havoc against the Greeks. And all through the story, we see an edict go out that would slaughter the covenant people of God. And then the story ends with peace in the court. 
Mordecai spoke peace to all his people. The story of Esther ends with the proverbial happy ending. But there is yet another sense of irony. The story is named after Esther. But the story of Esther didn't begin with Esther. It was because of Queen Esther, in part, that her people were saved. But as the story concludes, who gets the last word? It's not Queen Esther's greatness that is remembered here in the conclusion. It's Mordecai's. Now, have you considered, as we've been meditating on this story for the last five weeks, have you considered how different this story could have looked had Queen Vashti remained queen? Or if a different woman in the empire won Xerxes' beauty contest? This would be a very, very different story. But in God's providence to deliver his covenant people from death, he providentially chose to use Queen Esther. As one commentator pointed out, the importance of most biblical women, such as Sarah and Hannah, lies in their motherhood. Esther's importance to the covenant people is not as a mother, but as a queen. So, who is the main character of this story? If Mordecai didn't report the assassination plot, he wouldn't have been rewarded later. But, at, but if Esther had not been queen, then Mordecai probably would, have had, uh, would not have had a listening ear or had been credited for his loyalty. If Mordecai bowed before Haman as he was commanded, then the crisis the Jews faced likely would have been, uh, 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 would never have emerged. But if Esther had refused to please the king, then there likely would have been no sympathetic queen who would risk her life to intercede on behalf of her people. And yes, Mordecai was the one who insisted that Queen Esther plead for their people before the king. And even if she wouldn't risk her life, then surely deliverance would come from someplace else. But it was Queen Esther who interceded on behalf of her people. It was Queen Esther who devised the plan to expose Haman before the king. Esther was the one who identified Mordecai as her family. Yet without Mordecai's decree, Haman's decree of death would have prevailed. Mordecai rose to power, and the fear of him among the people in the empire reversed the Jews' fate. But had Queen Esther not interceded for her people, the Jews surely would have perished. So, when we conclude this story, who is the main character? The story may be named after her. And in the end, it may be Mordecai's greatness that is displayed. And in the end, we may see that the people have received peace. This story may even go so far as to not even name the Lord. But the main character in this story is the promise-making and promise-keeping God. Though he has remained largely invisible, his sovereign, wise, mind-boggling providence is clearly evident in every scene and twist and turn in Esther's story. Though he could not be seen, the Lord was orchestrating and arranging all things to deliver his people and to keep his covenant promises. As one pastor said, Esther just happens to be Jewish. And she just happens to be beautiful. Esther just happens to be favored by the king. Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king's life. A report of this just happens to be written in the king's chronicles. And Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai does not kneel down before him. And he just happens to find out that Mordecai is a Jew. When Haman plots his revenge, the dice just happen to indicate that the date for exacting revenge is to be put off for almost a year. Do you remember what Proverbs 16.33 says? The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. 
Esther happens to get the king's approval to speak, but then she happens to put off her request for another day. Her deferral just happens to send Haman out by Mordecai one more time, which just happens to cause him to recount it to his friends. They, in turn, just happen to encourage him to build a scaffold immediately. So Haman just happens to be excited to approach the king early the next morning, and it just so happens that the previous night, the king could not command a moment's sleep, and he just happened to have a... uh, had a book brought to him that recounted Mordecai's deed. He then happened to ask whether Mordecai had been rewarded, to which his attendants happened to know the answer. Haman happens to approach the king just when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored. Later on, the king happens to return to the queen just when Haman happens to be pleading with Esther in a way that can be misconstrued. The gallows of Haman built for Mordecai just happens to be ready when King Xerxes wants to hang Haman. Friends, did all these things just happen? Are all these instances just mere coincidence? Brothers and sisters, how do you read this story? Is it simply just a collection of random and lucky and happy accidents that all ends up in a proverbial happy ending? Even more Brothers and sisters, do you view your life in the same way? Just one coincidental moment after another, all driven and governed by the powers of chance and luck. You can be honest. This is a safe space. Is that how you view your life? As one pastor, uh, Mark Dever, said, Apart from believing that God actively and sovereignly rules over our world, the book of Esther becomes a mere celebration of Mordecai's wisdom, Esther's courage, and most of all, simple chance and luck. But friend, if you are a Christian, this is not how you should read this book. I assure you, this is not why it was written. This book was written to show that God himself acts to achieve the total defeat of his, of his foes and the safety of his people. Who is the main character in Esther's story? It is God. Who is the main character in your story? It is God. This brief book was not written so that we would perpetuate the idea that our lives are governed simply by the forces of coincidence or chance. If you believe that today, there is a better alternative for you to believe in and to rest in. This brief book is a 10-chapter long meditation on the comforting truth that we read in Romans 8. The truth that we have considered through this entire series. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, if you are in Christ, there is not a thing that can happen to you, that will happen to you, that may happen to you, that has happened to you, or will happen yet in the future, that will not be orchestrated by God to be worked for your good. You, if you are in Christ, never have to wonder or question if you have been called according to his purpose. Your strength will not answer this question, am I called according to his purpose? Your wisdom and your intellect, how elite you are amongst your peers, will not answer this question if you are called according to his purpose. What will answer that question? Do I love God? And how have I loved God? By looking to Jesus Christ. We love, not, we do not love first. We love because he has loved us first. If you are a Christian, 
God himself is the main character in your story, just as he is in the story of Esther. If you are a Christian, the main character of your life, the main character of the moments that will transpire today and tomorrow and for the remainder of your life, that main character is God. God is the one who was at work forming and creating you. God is the one who sent his own son for you. God is the one who is at work to bring about regeneration in you. God is the one who is at work to sanctify you even now and to bring you into conformity into the image of Jesus on his day. God is the one who is orchestrating and arranging and working all of the great and small details of your life for your good. God is the one who is working all things together for your good even when you look around and your life and you wonder what is there that is good to be used. God is the one who will complete the good work that he has begun in you. God is the one who will bring you to glory. God will bring you to glory. When we conclude reading this story of Esther, we can confidently say that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And while we are not promised peace and prosperity in this life, while we are not promised that all of our dreams will be manifested and come true as we have schemed and wished for, we can rest assured, dear brother and sister, that for those who love God, he is working all things together for good. While we may not be promised peace and prosperity, there are lessons that are to be learned for God's people from this brief story. That brings us to our third observation before we conclude. The lessons that we learn. If you're taking notes, uh, I've, been, uh, I've tried to be very note-friendly for you. I'm going to give you the two lessons now. God will deliver his justice and God will deliver his people. Let's consider this first lesson. God will deliver his justice. Friends, have you considered that? Have you given any thought to this idea that the Lord God will deliver his justice? Have you considered that in a grand sense, he already has and he will still? If you still need convincing that the God of the Bible is a promise-making, promise-keeping God who will exact justice and deliver justice, then look at the good news of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the grandest story of a sudden turn from death to life. It is the greatest story that we can consider where justice is delivered. The gospel tells us that God sent his own son, truly God and truly man, to live a perfect life of obedience and love of God for God. A life that you and I could not and cannot live. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for the penalty of our sin. He died the death that you and I deserved to die. But three days later, Jesus rose again from the grave, demonstrating that God the Father was satisfied with his atoning work. And friends, Jesus now invites you to repent of your unbelief and to trust in him. It is only by faith in Christ can we find our sins forgiven and friendship and peace with God restored. You may be someone who is visiting with us today. Maybe you're someone who uh, don't believe in Jesus Christ and the good news that I have delivered to you today. Let me encourage you to stick around for a little while after the service. Uh, there are plenty of friends sitting around you that would be happy to talk to you about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But friends, whether you are a Christian or you are, you are yet to be a Christian, there is one truth that we must reckon with. God will indeed deliver his justice. His justice, uh, the deliverance of his justice may tarry, but it will certainly be delivered. As one pastor said, 
the book of Esther is a display of God's sovereignty. Jesus, by God's will, relived the history of God's wayward Old Testament people. Yet Jesus relived this history correctly and so reversed the fatal effects of the fall. Where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and then spent 40 years sinning in the wilderness, Jesus was baptized and then spent 40 days resisting temptation in the wilderness. Where Adam chose his will over God's will in the garden, Jesus chose God's will over his own will in another garden. And where Adam willfully went to a tree demanding life but found death, Jesus submissively went to a second tree accepting death so that he could give life. Friends, the book of Esther fits with God's long pattern of turning the tables on his enemies and providing for his wayward elect. The point of Esther today does not have to do with Jewishness, that God means to preserve the Jewish people still. Centuries before Esther, the Lord had promised to bless Abraham and his seed, and echoes of that promise resound in Esther as God's people enjoy his blessing and protection. But the fullness of God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in those who believe in him. It's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. As Paul says in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the great story in which the book of Esther is a wonderful chapter. So friends, if God will deliver his justice, what does that mean for you? If you have trusted in Christ, does this give you hope? If you have yet to trust in Christ, will you turn to him in faith today? There's a second lesson for us to consider God will deliver his people. But what will our great king deliver us from? What will our great king deliver us to? What will our feasting and celebration look like? You are not commanded, according to the word of God, to go home today and to go observe the feast of Purim. No. But you will feast you will celebrate. You will rejoice. Isaiah 35.10 gives us a small glimpse of what our future feasting looks like. Isaiah records, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. But Isaiah 35 isn't the only image of what our future fasting will look like, or excuse me, future feasting will look like. We're shown another beautiful image of what our secured future will be. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John records in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you see a, a, a picture of beautification here? We saw a picture of beautification in Esther's story. There is a beautification that is coming when the beautiful bride of God will come adorned for her husband. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Do you, do you see what your future looks like? If you need a little help to uh, see more clearly what the future holds for you, Sam Storms will be helpful. Here's what he said. No more death. Not of husbands, wives, 
aunts, uncles, children, brothers, sisters, grandfathers, grandmothers, cousins, friends, neighbors. Funeral homes will be put out of business. Cemeteries will be empty, for all will have been raised in glorified bodies that are no longer susceptible to disease and decay. Never again the long meetings at the funeral home, deciding on caskets and vaults and limos and flowers. No more graveside services, no obituaries to be read, no video tributes of a person's life, no eulogies, no flowers to be sent or cards of condolence to be written. Never again a long caravan with cars with their headlights on. No police escorts to the cemetery. No headstones or awkward moments when you just don't know what to say. Friends, those of you who live with constant chronic pain and disability should be especially encouraged and empowered to persevere. The day is coming when it comes, and when it comes, it comes forever, never to be reversed, when all pain will be gone. And not just physical pain, but emotional pain, marital pain, relational pain, the pain of a wayward child or an unfaithful spouse, the pain of disappointment and loss, indeed, the pain of every sort and from every cause will be gone. You who suffer from depression or anxiety or relentless fear, will forever and finally be set free. The joy and happiness and elation that will be yours will immeasurably, indeed, infinitely exceed anything that you have ever experienced in this life or hope to have experienced. Why? Because the former things will have passed away. Indeed, as God himself declares in verse 5, he is making all things new. He is making all things new. From the beginning of our series, we've considered the many comforting truths found in the book of Esther. Truths like, even when the Lord's hand cannot be seen, and he is seemingly nowhere to be found, the Lord is sovereignly arranging all things for the good of his people. Even in your darkest circumstances, when the Lord seems nowhere to be found, he is with you. When uh, we've considered the truth that God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his own people. In God's mysterious and mind-boggling providence, he will defeat all of his enemies and bring victory for his people. There is one final thought in conclusion today. God's people will feast in peace with King Jesus forever. God's people will feast in peace with King Jesus forever. It is with this truth of our secured future in mind that we sing words like, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, and we will feast and weep no more. Let's pray. Father, it is with glad hearts that we sing together today, that we will feast in your house, that we will sing with our hearts restored. Father, you truly have done great things. The greatest thing that we have seen is the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will sing his praises together forever, where we will feast and we will weep no more. God, we long for the great feast that is to come in your day when we will feast with our king forever, with joy, with gladness, uh, with upright hearts, and with celebration. And until that day, God, we long for your return. We long for your shalom. We long for peace to come in your son. So, Father, we will commit ourselves by faith to our great king who will prepare this feast for us, who will adorn us, who will prepare for us a table that will have no end. And until that day, God, we will look to your son with great hope and great expectation because you truly have done great things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.